Welcome to 10-Minute Theology, thinking rightly about God, scriptures, and the church. 10 minutes at a time, with Joel Wentz. In this podcast series, I've been stepping through ancient Judeo-Christian scriptures, specifically the book of Genesis, in what Christians know as the Old Testament. My goal has been to try to treat all these texts just as seriously as any other work of philosophy, theology, literature, etc., trying to unpack themes and ideas that I think are worthy of our respect as readers today. You can go back and listen to some of the previous episodes to get a little bit more of the kind of foundation of what I'm trying to do with these these short 10-minute episodes. But here we are. We're at Genesis 3. So we've already talked through kind of the big overture, zoomed-out perspective of Genesis 1, and then the zoomed-in story on the creation of humans, which happened in Genesis 2. And again, you can listen to those pretty easily if you haven't yet. So here we are at an extremely famous part of a really, really famous story that the story of Adam and Eve is it just occupies a really kind of popular consciousness in our culture. So it's kind of interesting territory to try to dive into that, something that seems so popularly understood. And seriously, there is so, so, so much in this story in chapter three of Genesis. It's really kind of wild. It's extremely dense. You can pull a ton of insights out of almost every line. And that's kind of part of what we miss when it's so popularly understood. Everyone kind of thinks they know this this general idea of what's going on in Adam and Eve, but there's just so much more in it. Um, So as a result of how much there is in this story, there's absolutely no way we're going to get through it in one 10 minute episode. I'm not sure exactly how many it's going to take, but there's no way it's going to happen in one or probably even two. So here we go. Let's dive in to chapter three. So chapter three starts out right away with the introduction of a new character. Again, chapter two is all about the creation of humans. They're not named yet. So Eve is not named yet. It's an important thing to tuck away. But we get a new character now, the serpent. And we need to do some groundwork to set up how to even approach this character, I think. Because, and this might be surprising if you haven't really studied these texts, but the serpent in the text itself is nowhere identified clearly as Satan. That may be surprising to you, but if you come from a Christian background, as I do, it's really important for us to kind of declutter our head as much as possible of notions of Satan or the devil, just for the moment, just for the moment. Let me explain what I mean. Because it's a much later tradition that connected the serpent character of Genesis explicitly with Satan or the devil. But not in this section of scripture, it's just not there. Now, I want to say that I'm not trying to devalue the tradition that made that connection. Let me explain kind of what's going on here, because I'm trying to take the text seriously as it is written down and as we have it today. So what we get, what we do get here in the text is a short statement that the serpent is more crafty than any of the other animals the Lord God had made. So here we have a crafty creature. That word is very intentional. And when you put this in the context of other ancient Near Eastern literature, especially of the time and especially of creation stories with gods and deities involved, it's pretty clear that the language around the serpent here is extremely tr- similar to uh, trickster characters that show up, or chaos characters. Uh, John Walton, if you want to chase some stuff down, his work on this is extremely helpful. So remember from chapter one that a big theme is God bringing order out of chaotic space. So here we have this crafty, clever serpent character who seems to be indicated as an agent of 
this chaos, an agent who is seems to be here to try to undo the ordered creation that God has been working out. And here's where we start to get into the tradition, because if you are set against undoing the order that God is bringing, then you are quite literally set against God, or you could say you are an adversary of God. And what is the Hebrew word for adversary? But Satan, which is where we get our anglicized word Satan. So this is where the connection came. Much later, as you start to get other scriptures about Satan and the adversary and the devil and all these, these all kind of coalesce and come together. And we create a tradition in which identifies the serpent with Satan. It kind of makes sense. The tradition makes sense. So I'm not trying to denigrate it. But again, just for now, especially if you have a hard time respecting these scriptures or they've been kind of wielded and like as rhetorical hammers and you've been, uh, they've been handled too simplistically, just, it's okay to just park all that to the side and just look at the story that we have on the page. So try to clear your head of images of red-skinned, pitchfork-wielding, tailed, and hooved uh, demon men. (laughs) That's not what's going on here. And another thing I don't want uh, you to get hung up on is a question like, why would God even make this creature? So sometimes people will read that statement and say, it says, you know, it's craftier than any other creature the Lord God had made. But why would God even put that creature there? That seems like a legit question, and it probably is a legit question at some point, but... Frequently what we do when we come to these stories is we ask questions that the scriptures themselves are not interested in answering. And don't do that. The analogy here that I think of is when you're watching a movie and the person sitting next to you constantly interrupts you and leans over and asks, why are they doing that? What, what are they, why, why did they say that? Why didn't they do this? That's annoying, right? You probably get annoyed when someone does that and keeps interrupting a narrative flow with questions that the story itself either isn't trying to answer in the moment or you're certain will answer eventually. And I think something similar is going on here. So all we have right here is the affirmation that the serpent has been made, it is clever, and it has been placed in the garden. That's it. Don't ask any more questions about that yet. So we have a clever chaos creature in the garden with the humans who have been, again, placed in the garden to keep furthering the ordering Uh, work that God is doing. It gave them the divine image and the command to keep doing this as partners, as I discussed in the last time. So what are they going to do? They're placed in this garden. There's a clever chaos agent in the garden with them. What is going to happen? That's what's teed up here in this first line. So as we continue, we see that the serpent initiates the conversation with the humans, but right away, right away, something feels off. How do we know that it feels off? Well, let's look really carefully. Look at the woman's response. Again, her name's not Eve yet. This is the woman. In her response to the serpent, she actually adds to the command that God gave them. She says, well, no, God told us not only not to eat of the tree, but not even to touch it. That's an important little phrase. If you look back at chapter two, God never said don't touch it. God just said don't eat of it. So remember how I mentioned in the last episode that the man was the only one in the story who actually heard and received God's command about the tree directly from God? So what we have now, we're left with this quandary. Because whatever way you cut it, something in this interaction is revealing that something has already gone off the rails in this whole creation project. Something has. Not all as well. We don't exactly know what it is. So a couple ideas are, is it because the man incorrectly understood the command? So So did the man incorrectly understand what God said? Did the man incorrectly explain it to the woman? Did the man correctly explain it, but maybe the woman incorrectly understood it? Where did the breakdown happen? Something from God delivering the command to the woman explaining the command back to the serpent has broken down. And I want to add one more, I think, kind of intriguing possibility. Maybe 
We don't know, but maybe the humans were worried about accidentally breaking the command of eating of the tree. So they added a regulation of also don't touch it on top of the command. Isn't that an interesting possibility? And by the way, as a side note, I think asking questions like this is way more interesting than saying, well, why did God put the serpent there in the first place? That's just not really that interesting of a question. But as you get into the story and start seeing how the characters play off of each other, I think you can get to more interesting territory. And these exact questions, I think, are an example of that. That's why I actually like looking at scripture this way. So, back to our quandary. If it is possible that the humans added a rule onto God's rule, I think that is a very, very relatable struggle or situation. And actually, what's more interesting about this is, remember, this was Jewish people writing down their own story. I talked about that in a previous episode. And so what is well known about Jewish people down uh, history is that with things like the Talmud, they would add a lot of regulations onto the laws that were inherited. Um, they would add things on, onto it, not to necessarily be onerous and make a burden, although that's what ended up happening, but they did it to make sure that people didn't accidentally break the laws that they were given, because they didn't want to break those laws. The laws were good. And so they added extra commands on top of it to kind of build a fence around the law, which is actually the phrase that they use. So, okay, remember, this is the Jewish people writing down their story. So is it that far of a stretch to think maybe these first humans got a law from God, and out of their desire to keep that law, built an extra law around it. And that's what informs the woman's response to the serpent. I think that is very possible, and, and, and this is the important thing, very relatable to us today, because we all do the same thing. And what's intriguing about this story is what the story takes um, from that, and how it unspools the implications of what happens when we add rules onto the rules that the creator of life has given us, the boundaries that the creator of life has given us. What happens when we start to question that, when we start to grasp for control, when maybe we don't really trust the rules that we've been given in and of themselves? That's what we're about to find out as we progress through this chapter. Thanks for listening. For more information, you can check out the podcast page at joelwentz.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at joelthevaliant. And of course, you can subscribe to 10-Minute Theology on iTunes. Take care.